So how has your liminal living gone this week? How has life been on the threshold of time and eternity? How have you been navigating this uh, no longer and not yet? Liminal living means uh, threshold living. It means living in the tension between one state and another, knowing that you're no longer here, but neither are you there yet. It means getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. It means getting comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. And during Advent, we're being introduced to this idea of living in the in-between. In in Romans uh, 13, verse 11, Paul tells us how to live liminally. He says this, that the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Friends, the, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here, and if that was true, then how much more is it true now? The sun is peaking over the horizon, and in preparation for the full sunrise, we put aside the deeds of darkness, and we put on the armor of light. This is our mode of operation in the in-between. Week one, Miranda And Deborah reminded us of our first Advent truth that Jesus has revealed himself in obscurity and he will reveal himself again in glory. Week two, we learned our second Advent truth that that Jesus... that, that the revelation of Jesus leads to a response in us, that we are to level mountains of pride and we are to fill in ravines of brokenness to prepare the way for the Lord in our hearts and in the lives of others. Why? So that all people will see the glory of the Lord. This is our missionary calling. This morning, we're going to focus in even further on that idea of response because part of the response that all people everywhere are called to is repentance. As we live in this in-between, as we live in this liminal space, our posture is to be one of repentance. Revealing, responding, repenting. Now, our culture doesn't like the idea of repentance. Well, actually, let me uh, correct that statement. Uh, We're fine if others repent. We like others to repent, but we're not such big fans of it ourselves because the moment we repent, we're admitting that we were wrong, that everything is not okay in our lives, that we've not got it all together. And uh, if you want any example of us not having everything all together, if you had a power outage last night then you know what it is to wake up in the morning in a kerfuffle with not everything all together. You know, I sauntered into church because I had a shower. I felt good. I had power. We never lost a blink all through the night. I had a nice, easy morning. But a few weeks ago when our hot water tank wasn't working, that was a different morning. So we've not got it all together. But... It's in the grand scheme of the Bible, it's in the worldview of the Bible that um, as as we confess our sins, this is the most freeing moment in a person's life, which is why Paul reminds us 
that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger that leads us to repentance. It's not fear of God in that sense that, 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 that leads us to repentance. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And since God's kindness is the thing that leads us to repent, that causes us to repent, repentance isn't something we should avoid. It's not something that we have to fear. In fact, repentance is our way back home. So let's turn to our lectionary reading this morning, like we just heard from Kai. I, I just, I'm just really grateful for him. You know, he was, he just finished school. He'd finished basketball practice. He'd driven down to Brockville. He was in McDonald's waiting for his hockey practice and I Zoom called with him. And so he was sat there and he read our lectionary reading. You know, I just love that uh, we have folks in this church who are willing to uh, kind of Roll with the punches, as it were. But our, our reading this, this morning is from uh, Luke 3, starting at verse 7. And it says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, let's imagine um, next time we have a baptismal service, right? You know, the candidates are lined up at the front of the sanctuary, and, uh, and I say to them, or, you know, to you, I say, friends, here we have, here ready for the holy sacrament of baptism, this brood of vipers, We're going to ask each of these offspring of snakes to share their testimony with you. Uh, And then one by one, these uh, progenies of serpents will be baptized. It's going to be awesome. So which one of you sons or daughters of reptiles wants to go first? Okay, people are coming to John asking to be baptized And he yells at them and says, you brood of vipers, not just snakes, but you're a son of a snake. You're a daughter of a snake. And this meaning would not have been lost on his audience. They would have known that John was referring to the belief that young snakes, little baby vipers, cute little baby vipers, wouldn't just wait to be born. Instead, what would happen is that, uh, you know, the understanding was that they would be in the belly of their mummy, and much like in the movie Alien, they would eat their way out of the belly, therefore killing their mother in the process. Okay, let's just thank God that we're human this morning, especially if you're a woman who's given birth. Okay? So... So what John's going for here is this idea that these people coming to him for baptism are only concerned about self-preservation. They're doing this act of, act of baptism because they think that the act in itself has merit. This is the heart of the religious person, right? But like John understood and like we preach, Baptism is not the reality in and of itself. It is a sign that points to a moment of transformation that has already occurred. You, um, you wouldn't wake up or, no, you wouldn't set up camp at the sign for Algonquin Park, would you? No, the sign points to the reality of Algonquin Park, which is elsewhere. That's the place where you set up camp. But these people were coming to John, trying to set up camp 
at the act of baptism, at the symbol itself. They were saying, if we can do this, then we've arrived. We're okay. We're safe. We're in God's good books. And John's saying, no, you self-preserving brood of vipers who would kill your own mother if it assured you of eternal life. Um, as long as you don't have to be transformed actually on the inside. John is saying that if your life of faith stops at behavior modification, if it camps on the idea that doing the right thing is enough, then you've stopped short of the truth. And so I wonder, as I look at you this morning, you good, respectable church people, I wonder who of you, John, would call a viper's brood? Who of you are showing up and doing the right thing because you think that this thing, whatever it is, makes you right with God? Friends, if this is you, then I want you to know this morning that whatever that thing is that you think earns you favor with God, it's not enough. The only thing that is enough is faith in Jesus Christ that's proved by the fruits of repentance. So, In the passage this morning, John uh, shows us two insufficient alternatives, two repentance, two wrong responses to the wrath that is to come. The first insufficient response to um, this wrath is to simply flee, is to run away, is to get out of dodge. John says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? One day, this liminal time, this in-between time, this threshold time will be over, and then we will see God face-to-face as we read in the book of Matthew chapter 25 and in so many other passages in the Bible. And that moment of reckoning between a sinful humanity and a holy God is one of the Bible's central themes. And when faced with a holy God and the wrath that is to come, a natural response is to flee, is to get as far away as we can from this God to whom we must one day give an account. But John's point is that we cannot outrun God. God's holiness and purity, his nature is like a wildfire that consumes everything in its path, and you cannot outrun a wildfire. In uh, verse 16 of John 3, John says, of Luke 3, John says, I baptize you with um, water, but one, who is, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's saying that we either allow God to burn up our sin now in this time of grace, or we take our chances with him at the end of time. But either way, fleeing is not an option, because it's impossible to flee the coming wrath. The next insufficient response I'm going to call... I'm um, I'm, going to call family... The first was flee, and the second is family. And by family, I mean this in verse 8. And and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, right? John John knows what their response will be. And he says, do not even begin to say what I know you're about to say, which is that Abraham is our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children children for Abraham. The mindset that John is challenging here is our tendency to invoke our religious or spiritual 
maybe credentials. Maybe we're part of a lineage of pastors or missionaries or generations of people who've come faithfully to church. Maybe we've been going to Zion Hill Camp or to Silver Lake Camp for years and we give and we donate and we remember Cornerstone when it was North Gore Standard Church and we know what it was like to meet in the, in the old sanctuary that's, that's now the Fellowship Hall. We can trace our spiritual lineage back for generations with good stock, with good people. One time in the States, I met a Chinese woman whose ancestor, great, 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 and so on, grandmother, was, say, was led to salvation by Hudson Taylor himself. It was incredible to meet her because Hudson Taylor is a hero of the faith in my life. But it would have been insufficient if this woman had said, my ancestor came to faith through Hudson Taylor, this pioneer missionary in China. And because of that fact, because of that spiritual credential that I have, I am now okay. Faith does not automatically transfer from generation onto the next, right? God does not have any grandchildren. He only has children, We've addressed this in the book of Galatians, right? That the only true ancestor of Abraham is Jesus. And because of the spiritual and, and, and that we become the spiritual ancestor of Abraham's faith through tr- faith in, in Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a, a family tree that spans generations and generations and generations. Jesus' family tree is only one generation deep. But it's incredibly wide. Right, We're all a brother of Jesus, or a sister of Jesus, or a brother of Jesus, or a sister of Jesus. And if our kids come to faith, then they're a brother of Jesus, and a sister of Jesus, and a brother of Jesus, and a sister of Jesus, so on and so on. It just keeps on going out and out and out. But Jesus doesn't have any children. He only has brothers and sisters and God the Father. He doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. And so when we're faced with the coming wrath, with this moment of reckoning that will happen when, when, we, when we cross over the threshold into eternity, fleeing won't work and family inheritance won't work, which leaves us with the question, what will work? How do we survive the wrath that is to come? How do we survive coming face to face with the unmediated, pure holiness of a holy God? Verse 8 actually tells us, It says that we are to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The answer is not fleeing. The answer is not family. The answer is fruit. This is a theme throughout scripture, right? Fruit. Uh, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, the Lord is upright. He is my rock. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. By their fruit, you will recognize them. 
Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. In other words, don't tell me you believe in Jesus. Show me. Don't flee from the wrath to come. It won't work. Don't claim your family rights. God doesn't care whether you're a spiritual purebred or a mutt. Instead, produce fruit with keeping, in keeping with repentance. Well, what sort of fruit? What does this fruit in keeping with repentance look like? Well, in Luke 3, John addresses three groups, three groups of people who want to flee the wrath to come through the act of baptism. First, there is the... First there is the crowd, uh, then there is the tax collectors group two, and then the soldiers group three. And as I'm briefly skimming these, these groups, I want you to ask yourself, what is the fruit that I should be exhibiting in my life if I claim to have repented and am following Jesus? Okay, this is not about what you claim to know or you or what you claim to believe. This is how you are living, because the way that you live either proves that you are Jesus's, or it actually actually disproves that you are his. So the first group is the crowd. Verse 10, what should we do? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Okay, so the value here, the fruit here, is actually generosity, okay? The fruit of repentance in the life of the crowd is generosity. Sharing what you have with those around you. If you are not generous, then if you are miserly, if you're scrooge, like if you're unwilling, you know, to give or to share, then this Advent calls you to examine yourself if you are to flee the wrath that is to come. The second group is the tax collectors. Verse 12, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to. He, he told them, the proof of, of an authentic heart change or life change in the life of the tax collector is a life of integrity, an absence of corruption, not abusing their, their position of power for personal gain. And through the mists of time, through them, John asks me and John asks you, are you living a life of integrity as fruit of repentance? Then the third group of uh, soldiers, verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your, with your pay. I read that the soldiers John would have been referring to would have been the Syrian auxiliary troops who worked for Rome. And they would sometimes mutiny for more wages or they would extort people by legally requisitioning some, someone else's stuff for their own personal use. They would steal. And so... The proof in the pudding of a transformed life in the life of a soldier, of a Syrian soldier in those days, was being truly content with what you have. Once again, don't abuse 
your position in order to get ahead. Instead, be counterculturally content with what you have. Now, of course, over this past year with inflation, I'm finding that my, my paycheck does not stretch as far as it used to. Hands up if you've experienced that over this past year. Yeah, I don't know if it's that our kids are growing up or that food and stuff is more expensive, but uh, I have less margin at the end of the month than I used to. You know, and the question that I have to ask myself is, am I content with what I have? Or am I always angling for more? Am I willing to step on people or mistreat them if it puts food on my table? Am I misusing my expense account, or am I content? Paul, writing to Timothy, said this. He said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and the trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and, and into destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then once again in Philippians, Paul says this, For I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Friends, I think that Christmas is one of the toughest times in the year for us to be content. We look left and we look right and we see what others either do or don't have. And in our hearts, we start to grumble. If you struggle with contentment, with the fruit of contentment, then I encourage you to do something for, for someone else. Speak to Ron Leeson in the church and find out how to get involved in the wood ministry and the wood deliveries. To someone who's truly in need and see your heart get changed. Why not ring a bell for the Salvation Army for a couple of hours? Or speak to Kim and Linda about how to be involved in the food bank. Do something for someone else that is not about you. Learn to be content. John has said to the crowd, it's not enough to be baptized. You need true life change that only comes through repentance and which is evidenced by generosity and by integrity and by contentment, which is the fruit of repentance. Generosity, integrity, and contentment. Friends, one day, this life will be over. And uh, scripture talks about a coming wrath. When the sin in your life encounters the wildfire of the holiness of God Almighty. And when faced with the coming wrath, our human tendency is to do whatever we, it takes to survive. To live like a brood of vipers. But self-preservation won't work. We cannot flee the coming wrath. 
Our family won't protect us from the coming wrath. The only way to survive that encounter is to be perfect as God is perfect, which none of us is. But Jesus is holy. He's the only human who lived a holy life and who died the death that we deserve. And when God's kindness leads us to repentance, and this uh, repentance goes on and on and on and never stops, when we live lives of continual repentance, what happens is that we come under the protection of Jesus' holiness. We come under the protection of Jesus' perfection. We huddle under Jesus' holiness. When he was on the cross, we transfused our sin to him. And he transfused his holiness to us. And under the cover of Jesus' protection, and only under the cover of Christ, can we withstand the fire of the coming wrath. It is, it is, in, it is as we turn to Christ. It's as we allow his life to grow and to flourish in ours And it's as his life flourishes and blossoms in ours that our mean-spiritedness turns into generosity and our corruption turns into integrity and our dissatisfaction and our malcontent turns into contentment. Why? Because I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and and who gave himself for me. And so in this moment, I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit the question that the crowd and the tax collectors and the soldiers asked John. What should we do? What should I do? What should I do? And maybe this morning is the moment when you repent and you place yourself, perhaps for the first time, under under the protection that Christ offers. What should you do? You should repent. You should turn away from your old life and embrace the new life that comes only through Jesus Christ. You should trust in him. Or maybe this morning you know that you've trusted Jesus, but you know that you're not producing the fruit in keeping with with repentance. You lack integrity or generosity or contentment. Friends, it's the same message. Repent. You know, turn away from that and instead embrace the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, one day this liminal moment will end. One day we will cross that threshold from time into eternity. One day this opportunity to respond to your grace will be done. One day we will have realized that we've actually made our choice for all eternity. And that choice will either cause us to rejoice forever Or we will be saddled forever with that regret of not having chosen you when we had the opportunity. Lord Jesus, I thank you that if you are our hiding place, then we do not need to flee. And we don't need to trust in our family or our heritage. But we can know that we are safe and loved by you through faith. 
friends, as we just listen to the music for a moment, let us take this moment. And if God has spoken to you this morning, um, either about uh, your lack of integrity or your lack of contentment, whatever it is, if Jesus has spoken to you this morning, just say to him, just whisper to him in your mind and maybe under your breath, just say, Lord, I repent. I come under your, your protection once again. I repent. I repent.